Chapter 18 of The Glory of Clementina Wing by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 18 Let us take the case of a refined and sensitive man who has fallen, as many have fallen, under the influence of drink. Let us suppose him to have sunk lower and lower into the hell of it until delirium tremens puts a temporary end to his excesses. Let us suppose him to be convalescent, in sweet surroundings, in capable hands, relieved, for the time at least, by the strange gold drug of his craving for alcohol. His mind is clear, his perceptions are acute, he is once more a sane human being. He looks back upon his degradation with wondering horror. It is not as though he has passed through a period of dark madness of which the memory is vague and elusive. He remembers it all, all the incidents, all the besotted acts, all the benumbed, enslaved surrender of his soul. His freed self regards perplexedly the self that was in bondage. They are two different entities, and yet they are unquestionably the same. He has not been mad, because he has felt all the time responsible for his actions, and yet he must have been mad so to dishonour the divine spirit within him. The latter argument prevails. I have been mad, he says, and shivers with disgust. In some such puzzled frame of mind, Dick Quixter's freed from the obsession of the idea, regard his self of the last few months. He remembered how it had happened. There had been several shocks, the marable disaster, the discovery of Angela and Hammersley's betrayal, that of the disloyalty of his three pensioners, the cynical trick of his uncle. He remembered toying with the idea on his homeward journey, the farcical faithlessness of the drunken housekeeper, and then, click, the hag idea had mounted on his shoulders and ridden away with him, as alcohol, the very devil himself, rides away with the unresisting drunkard. Every action, every thought of this strange period was clear in his memory. He could not have been mad, and yet he must have been. To strain the analogy a trifle, the nightmare in the train, and the horror of the morning, had been his delirium tremens. But here the analogy suffers a solution of continuity. From that climax of devil-work, the drunkard descends but slowly and gradually through tortures innumerable to the normal life of man. Shock is ineffective. But in Quixote's case there was a double shock, the seismic convulsion of his being at the climactic moment, and the sudden announcement of that which to all men born is the only absolute, final, immutable. And then, click! The hag that had ridden him had been thrown from his shoulders, and he had looked upon the dead through the eyes of a sane man. And now, through the eyes of a sane man, he regarded the incredible spectacle of his self of yesterday. He turned from it with shivers of disgust. He must have been mad. A great depression came upon him. He had suffered grievous wrongs, it is true. No man since Job had been more sorely afflicted. The revelations of human baseness and treachery had been such as to kill his once childlike faith in humanity. But why had loss of faith sent him mad? What had his brain been doing to allow this grotesque impulse to overmaster it? At the present moment, he assured himself, he had neither more nor less faith in mankind than when he had walked a maniac through the London streets, or during last night's tortured journey in the train. Yet now he desired to commit no wickedness. The thought of evil for evil's sake was revolting. The self that he had striven to respect and keep clean all his life had been soiled. Wherein lay purification. Had he been mad? If so, how could he trust his memory as to what had happened? 
by the grace of God those acts of wickedness whose contemplation he remembered had been rendered nugatory. Even Tommy had not materially suffered, seeing that he had kept the will intact and had placed two thousand pounds to his banking account. But could he actually have committed deeds of wickedness which he had forgotten? Were there any such which he had committed through the agency of the three evil counsellors? He racked his memory in vain. The time at Marseilles passed gloomily. Pointer, the good Samaritan, started the first evening for Devonshire to satisfy his hungry soul with the unutterable comfort of English fields. Clementina and Quixter saw him off at the station and walked back through the sultry streets together. The next day he was left much to his own company as Clementina broke the news of death to the child and stayed with her for comfort. He wandered aimlessly about the town, seeking the shade and wrapping himself in his melancholy. When he saw Sheila in the afternoon, she was greatly subdued. She understood that her father had gone to heaven to stay with her mother. She realised that she would never see him again. Clementina briefly informed Quixtus of the child's grief, how she had cried and called for him most of the morning, how she had fallen asleep and had awakened more calm. To distract her mind and to give her the air, they hired a taxicab and drove on the Corniche Road past the restaurant de la Reserve. Sheila's tiny body easily nestled on the seat between them, and she seemed comforted by the human contact. From Pinky she also derived great consolation. Pinky was stupid, she explained, and she couldn't talk, but really she was a fairy princess, and fairy princesses were always affectionate. Pinky was stuffed with love as tight as she could hold. "'Have you ever been in a motor-car before?' asked Quixters. "'Oh, yes, of course I have,' she replied in her rich little voice. "'Daddy had one in Shanghai. He used to take me out in it.' Then her lips quivered, and the tears started, and she flung herself weeping against Clementina. "'Oh, Daddy! I want my Daddy!' The central feminine in Clementina sprang to arms. "'Why did you start her off like this by talking of motor-cars?' "'I'm dreadfully sorry,' said Quixters. "'But how was I to know?' "'Just like a man,' she retorted. "'No intuition worth a cent.' At dinner, a melancholy meal, Theirs was the only table occupied in the vast, ghostly salle à manger. She apologised in her gruff way. I was wrong about the motor-car. How the deuce could you have known? Besides, if you had talked to the child about triple expansion boiler, her daddy would be sure to have had one at Shanghai. Poor little mite. Yes, poor little mite, said Quixtus meditatively. I wonder what will become of her. That has got to be our lookout, she replied sharply. You don't seem to realise that. I don't think I do quite, even after what you said to me yesterday. I must accustom myself to the idea. Yesterday, said Clementina, you declared that you had fallen in love with her. Many a man, replied Quixtus with a faint smile, has fallen in love with one of your sex, has not in the least known what to do with her. The grim setting of Clementina's lips relaxed. I think you're becoming more human. And talking of humanity— there's a question that must be cleared up between us before we settle down to this partnership. Are you intending to keep up your diabolical attitude towards Tommy Burgrave? The question had been burning her tongue for over twenty-four hours, from the moment that he had appeared in the vestibule the day before, after his sleep, and seemed to have recovered from the extraordinary nervous collapse which had aroused her pity. With considerable self-restraint she had awaited her opportunity. Now it had come— and when an opportunity came to Clementina, she did not go by four roads to take it. Quixtus laid down his knife and fork, 
and leaned back in his chair. Knowing her attachment to the boy, he had expected some reference to his repudiation. But the direct question disconcerted him. Should he have to render equally sudden account of all the fantastic iniquities of the past? Then something he had not thought of before entered his amazed head. He had never countermanded the order whereby the allowance was automatically transferred from his own banking account to Tommy's. He had intended to write the letter after having destroyed the will, but his reflections on plagiarism and wickedness which had led to the preservation of that document had also caused him to forget the other matter entirely, and he had not thought of it from that day to this. "'As a matter of fact,' said he, looking at his plate, "'I have not disinherited Tommy. I have not discontinued his allowance, and I have placed a very large sum of money to his credit at the bank.' Clementina knitted her brows and stared at him. The man was a greater puzzle than ever. Was he lying? If Tommy had found himself in opulence, he would have told her. Tommy was veracity incarnate. The boy hasn't a penny to his name, nothing except his mother's fifty pounds a year. He met her black, keen eye steadily. I'm telling you the facts. He can't have inquired about his bank balance recently. He passed his hand across his forehead as realisation of the past strange period came to him. I suppose he can't have done so, as he has never written to acknowledge the, the large amount of money. But the man was telling the truth. It was mystifying. Then why in the name of Bedlam did you play the fool with him like that? That is another matter, said he, lowering his eyes. For the sake of an answer, let us say that I wanted to test his devotion to his art. We could say it as much as we please, but I don't believe it. I will ask you, Clementina said he courteously, as a great personal favour, to let it pass at that. All right, said Clementina. He went on with his dinner. Presently another thing struck him. He was to find a plaguey lot of things to strike him in connection with his lunacy. If Tommy was penniless, said he, would you explain how he's managed to take this expensive holiday in France? Look here, let us talk of something else, she replied. I'm sick of Tommy. Visions of Tommy's weeping joy, of Etta's radiance, when they should hear the astounding news, floated before her. She could hear him telling the chit of a girl to put on her orange blossoms and go out with him at once and get married. She could hear Etta say, "'Darling Clementina, do run out and buy me some orange blossoms.' Much the two innocents cared for darling Clementina. There were times when she really did not know whether she wanted to take them both in her arms in a great splendid hug or to tie them up together in a sack and throw them into the Seine. "'I'm sick of Tommy,' she declared. But the normal brain of the cultivated man had begun to work. "'Clementina,' said he, "'it is you that have been paying Tommy's expenses.' "'Well, suppose I have,' she replied defiantly. She added quickly, womanlike, divining the approach to Tommy, underlying Quixus's challenge. "'He's a child, and I'm an old woman. I have the deuce's own job to make him accept.' I couldn't go careering about France all by myself. I could, as a matter of practical fact. I could career all over Gehenna if I chose. But it wouldn't have been gay. He sacrificed his pride to give me a holiday. What have you to say against it? A flush of shame mounted to Quixness's cheek. It was intolerable that one of his house, his sister's son, should have been dependent for bread on a woman. He himself was to blame. Clementina, said he, this is a very delicate matter, and I hope you won't misjudge me. But as your great generosity was based on a most unhappy misunderstanding, Ephraim Quixtus 
she interrupted, seeing whether he was tending. "'Go on with your dinner, and don't be a fool.' There was nothing for it but for Quixus to go on with his dinner. "'I tell you what,' she said, after a pause, in spite of her weariness of Tommy as a topic of conversation, "'when Tommy met you in Paris he didn't know what you've just told me. He thought you had unreasonably and heartlessly cut him adrift. And yet he greeted you as affectionately and frankly as if nothing had happened.' "'That's true,' Quixus admitted. "'He did.' "'It proves to you what a sound-hearted fellow Tommy is.' "'I see,' said Quixtus. "'Well?' "'That's all,' said Clementina. "'Or if it isn't, it ought to be.' Quixtus made no reply. There was no reply possible, save the real explanation of his eccentric behaviour, and that he was not prepared to offer. But Clementina's rough words sank deep in his mind. Judged by ordinary standards, his treatment of Tommy had been unqualifiable. Tommy's behaviour all that was most meritorious. In Tommy's case, wherein lay the proof of the essential depravity of mankind? His gloomy faith received a shock which caused him exceeding discomfort. You see, if you take all the trouble of going mad for the sake of a gospel, you rather cling to it when you recover sanity. You are rather eager to justify to yourself the waste of time and energy. It is human nature. After dinner she dismissed him. He must go out to a café and see the world. She had to look after the child's slumbers and write letters. Quixtus went out into the broad, busy streets. The air was crowded with gasping but contented citizens. On every side rose the murmur of mirth and cheerfulness. Solid burgesses strolled arm in arm with their solider wives. Youths and maidens laughed together. Swarthy workmen with open shirt-collars showing their hairy throats, bareheaded work-girls in giggling knots, little soldiers clinging amorously to sweethearts. All the crowd wore an air of gaiety, of love of their kind, of joy in comradeship. At the thronged cafés, too, men and women found comfort in the swelter of gregariousness. Night had fallen over the baking city, and the great thoroughfare blazed in light, from shop-windows, cafés, street-lamps, from the myriad whirling lamps of trams and motors. Above it all the full moon shone splendid from the intense sky of a summer night. Quixtus and the moon appeared to be the only lonely things in the Canabier. He wandered down to the quay and back again in ever-growing depression. He felt lost, an alien among this humanity that clung together for mutual happiness. He envied the little soldier and his girl, gazing hungrily, their heads almost touching, into a cheap jeweller's window. A sudden craving such as he had never known in his life awoke within him, insistent, imperious, a craving for human companionship. Instinctively he walked back to the hotel, scarcely realising why he had come, until he saw Clementina in the vestibule. She had stuck on her crazy hat and was putting on her white cotton gloves, evidently preparing to go out. "'Hello! Back already?' "'I have come to ask you a favour, Clementina,' said he. "'Would it bore you to come out with me, to give me the pleasure of your company?' "'It wouldn't bore me,' replied Clementina. "'Precious few things do. But what on earth can you want me for?' "'If I tell you, you won't mock at me.' "'Only mock at you, as you call it, when you do idiotic things. Anyhow, I won't now. What's the matter?' He hesitated. She saw that her brusqueness had checked something natural and spontaneous. At once she strove to make amends, and laid her hand on his sleeve. "'We've got to be friends henceforth, Ephraim, if only for the child's sake. Tell me.' 
It was only that I have never felt so dismally alone in my life as I did in that crowded street. And so you came back for me? I came back for you, he said with a smile. Let us go, said Clementina, and she put her arm through his, and they went out together and walked arm in arm like hundreds of other solemn couples in Marseilles. That better? she asked after a while, with a humorous and pleasant sense of mothering this curiously pathetic and incomprehensible man. The unfamiliar tone in her voice touched him. I had no idea you could be so kind, Clementina. Yesterday morning, when I was ill, I can scarcely remember, but I feel you were kind then. I am not always a rhinoceros, said Clementina, but what am I doing that's kind now? He pressed her arm gently. Just this, said he. Then Clementina realised, with an odd thrill of pleasure, how much more significance often lies in little things than in big ones. They walked along the quay and looked on the island of the Chateau d'If, standing out grim in the middle of the moonlit harbour, turned up one of the short streets leading to the Rue de Rome, and so came into the Canabière again. A table, just vacated on the outer edge of the terrace at one of the cafés, allured them. They sat down and ordered coffee. The little sentimental walk, arm in arm, had done much to dispose each kindly towards the other. Quixtus felt grateful for her rough yet subtle sympathy. Clementina appreciated his appreciation. The atmosphere of antagonism that had hitherto surrounded them had disappeared. For the first time since they arrived in Marseilles they talked on general topics. Almost for the first time in their lives they talked of general topics naturally, without constraint. Hitherto she had always kept an ear cocked for the pedant, he for the scoffer. She had been impatient of his quietism, he had nervously dreaded her brutality. Now a truce was declared. She forbore to jeer at his favourite pursuit, it not entering her head to do so. Quixtus, a man of breeding, never rode his hobby outside his ring, except in self-defence. They talked of music. A band was playing in the adjoining café. They discovered a common ground in Bach. Desultory talk led them to modern opera. There was a little haunting air, said he, in Enjoué de Flûte. This, cried Clementina, leaning across the table and humming it, you're the only English preacher I've come across who's ever heard of it. They talked of other things, of travel. Her tour through France was fresh in her mind. Sensitive artist, she was full of the architecture. Wherever she had gone, Quixtus had gone before her. To her after-astonishment, for she was too much interested in the talk to consider it at the time, he met her sympathetically on every point. "'The priceless treasures of France,' said he, "'are the remains of expiring Gothic and the early Renaissance. Of the former you have the Palais de Justice at Rouen, which everybody knows, and the west front of the Cathedral of Vendôme.' "'But I've just been to Vendôme,' cried Clementina, "'that wonderful flamboyant window.' The last word of Gothic, said Quixtus, the funeral pyre of Gothic, that tracery. The whole thing is on fire, it's all leaping flame, as if some god had said, let this noble thing that is dead have a stupendous end. Vendôme always seems to me like the end of the Viking. They sent the hero away to sea in a blaze of fire. Richelieu, the little town not far from Tours, where everyone goes, yet so unknown, built by the great cardinal for his court, and to-day standing with hardly change of stick or stone, just as Richelieu left it, Quixtus had visited. "'But that's damnable!' 
cried Clementina. "'I thought we had discovered it.' He laughed. Oh, "'So did I. And I suppose everybody who goes there views it with the eyes of a little Columbus.' "'What did you like best about it?' "'The pictures of the past it evoked. The cavalcade of Richelieu's nobles, all in their Louis Tres finery. The clatter of the men-at-arms down that broad, cobble-paved central street. The setting was all there. It was so easy to fill it.' "'That's just what Tommy did,' said Clementina. "'Tommy made a fancy sketch on the spot of the cardinal, "'entering in state in his great heavy carosse, "'with his bodyguard around him.' "'This led them on to pictures. "'She found that he was familiar with all the galleries in Europe, "'with most of the works of the moderns. "'She had never suspected that he had ideas of his own on pictures. "'He hated what he called the nightmare of tonique "'of the ultra-modern school. "'Clementina disliked it also.' "'All great art was simple,' he remarked. "'Put one of Hobima's sober landscape, the St. Michael of Raphael, amidst the hysteria of the Salon des Hommes de Pantin, and the four walls would crumble into chaotic paint.' "'Which reminds me,' said he, "'of a curious little experience a good many years ago. It was the first international art exhibition in London. Paris and Belgium and Holland poured out their violences to unfamiliar eyes. Mine were unfamiliar at any rate.' There were women sitting in purple cafés with orange faces and magenta hair. There were hideous nudes with muscles on their kneecaps writhing in decadent symbolism. There were portraits so flat that they gave the impression of insects squashed against the wall. I remember going through, not understanding it one bit. And in the midst of all this fever I came across a little gem, so cool, so finished, so sane, and yet so full of grip, and I stood in front of it until I got better and then went away. It was a most curious sensation, like a cool hand on a fevered brow. I happened not to have a catalogue, so I have never known the painter. "'What kind of a picture was it?' asked Clementina. "'Just a child in a white frock and a blue sash, and not a remarkably pretty child either. But it was a delightful piece of work.' "'Do you remember,' she asked, "'whether there was a mother-of-pearl box on a little table to the left of the girl?' "'Yes,' said Quixus, "'there was. Do you know the picture?' Clementina smiled. She smiled so that her white, strong teeth became visible. Quixus had never seen Clementina's teeth. "'Painted it,' said Clementina, throwing forward both her hands in triumph. One of her hands met the long glass of coffee and sent it scudding across the table. Quixus instinctively jerked his chair backward, but he could not escape a great splash of coffee over his waistcoat. Full of delights, gratitude, and dismay, Clementina whipped up her white cotton gloves, and before waiters with napkins could intervene, she wiped him comparatively dry. "'Your gloves! Your gloves!' he cried, protesting. She held up the unspeakable things, and almost laughed as she threw them on the pavement, whence they were picked up carefully by a passing urchin, for nothing is wasted in France." I would wipe you clean with my, well, with anything I've got, in return for you having remembered my picture. Well, said he, the compliment, being quite unconscious, was all the more sincere. The waiter mopped up the flooded table. Let us be depraved, said Clementina, in high good humour, and have some green chartreuse. Willingly, smiled Quixtus. So they were depraved. And when Clementina went to bed, she wondered why she had railed at Quixtus all these years. End of chapter 18